My guest today is David Kincaid, and he's about to give you a masterclass in branding and how you as an individual, a business owner, or someone passionate about a cause can stand out in this age of noise. So the customer calls the shots and always has. And the beauty of it in today's world is there's so many opportunities, new, immediate ways to listen to them. Kincaid's the real deal. It's not a stretch to say he's among North America's most recognized and respected opinion leaders in this field. He's also an entrepreneur, but we'll deal with that more later. I first met David Kincaid in the late 80s. We're dating ourselves, but I owned an agency called Communique, and David was a rising superstar at Labatt, leading a team charged with battling their biggest competitor, Molson. Combined at the time, both brands dominated the beer market, but Molson never saw what was about to happen to him when Kincaid came in and unleashed all sorts of new ways of being creative, bringing your brand to life. Now, my first impression when I met this guy is he had presence. Movie star looks and a voice, charming and engaging, but with a mind that never stopped processing. Five people could be having a conversation, 15 ideas could be the result, and Kincaid would synthesize and compress him into an actionable idea. What we did together was the Labatt Blue Zone, an immersive event where consumers could experience a brand versus just simply seeing it in a TV ad. It was one of the several bold and innovative initiatives that had David rising so quick that the parent company wanted him to move across the continents to Europe to take on an even stronger leadership position. 30 years later, we're still friends, our paths have crossed many times. I'm an even bigger fan of his ability to help individuals, brands, and entire organizations, small businesses to multinationals, stand for and stand out. I hope after hearing this interview, you'll take away why so much of this matters to you. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Dave Kincaid, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. So, doing a little background, I'm born in Toronto, but raised in Windsor and Montreal, my hometown. Why all the moose at an early age? I'd like to say because I love to travel, but uh, that's not the case. It was my parents. My dad, it's funny because my dad was in the dairy industry. And little did I know at the time, he was basically in the same kind of a regulated, government-driven industry that I would enter years later into the beer world. But the dairy world meant that he needed to, in order to go up the food chain with a with a uh, dairy at the time called Seal Test. Seal Test was continuing to buy small regional dairies and would place him in these uh, different cities to uh, inject the brand, create the new culture, the Seal Test culture, and to run it and make it more profitable and, uh, and efficient. Our paths crossed then as well, because at age 16, my first job, scooping ice cream in Montreal West at the Seal Test Dairy, where there'd be lineups around the street. Yeah. And I came out, I was like five foot one, 96 pounds, my right arm at the end of the summer had a, 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 <laughs> a you know, the rock bicep. And my left arm was the skinny kid that matched the rest of the body. So uh, so that's pretty interesting. As a kid, you strike me as someone that was precocious, uh, curious, probably a bit of a pain to teachers. Am I fair or not? Uh, you nailed it. <laughs> my parents would probably say the same thing. Precocious is probably the right word, but in a hopefully in a positive way. I always like to um, get involved in stuff. 
whether that was sports or things at the school or in the neighborhood. And I also like to get involved with stuff my parents were doing. So staying involved in a whole bunch of things uh, could have led to, you know, inch deep, mile wide. But I think what I learned to do um, more out of necessity than anything else was prioritize all the different things that I got involved with and, you know, try to as my mother used to say, leave it in a better state than you found it. You also had a shot at becoming a professional golfer. When did that dream start happening for you? Gotcha. It was actually in Windsor. We lived right across from the second hole of a golf course that we belonged to. And you could just walk on. And I used to go out there as a kid in the dark, chip balls and putt and, you know, practice things. And I'd always, as most kids do, you know, it's like winning the score, the the last goal in the Stanley Cup. I was dreaming about sinking the 40-foot putt to win the Canadian Open or whatever. And I loved it because it was a sport that my dad used to say, will always, once you get it into your bloodstream, will always be there. It's addictive. No matter how hard anybody works at it, no one will ever perfect it. So if you're a perfectionist, which I had a tendency to to be, that just became, got even more addictive. (laughs) So I practiced more. And I still, to this day, I can tell you, I never, I never perfected it. (laughs) So you go to Queen's University, one of Canada's top universities, poli-sci degree, the end game to become a lawyer. But I hear that the way you pay for a lot of that now, it wasn't, you know, hustling money on the golf course. You were a drummer in a rock and roll band. So how did that come about? I've always loved music and I actually taught myself how to play the drums. This is a true story. I wore out, I mean, literally, physically wore out two complete sets of Beatles albums from the beginning to the white album at like lit- and just sat there with a headset on with a gong for my mother's uh Chinese gong and practiced and not that Ringo Starr was always the best drummer but it was something that taught me what to do and then I just thought you know this is kind of cool I want to see if I can put it into a band started bands in Windsor and then when we got to Montreal actually played in a band that made some money then when I my dad said Starting your second year at university at Queens, you're paying for everything, which at the time was a bit of a jaw dropper. And I thought, well, I got to make some money and I don't want to be a bartender and I don't want to do the usual stuff. So what am I going to do? And I thought, hey, I made some money in Montreal playing in a band. So I started a band and it stuck. And we actually became kind of a local favorite in and around Kingston, the Ottawa Valley, into Quebec. And we play every single weekend. And at the top of taking a poli-sci degree and playing drums, you also became, uh, I guess you headed up the student council for the university. In my last year, uh, myself and two buddies decided that we'd run for the, what's called the alma mater society. And you had to get voted in by the students. Our team won. And we managed to convince the students that we had their best interests at heart. We had a great game plan on how to go forward. So I was trying to go to school to finish my pre-law degree. I was playing in a band on the weekends and I was trying to run the student government. That's what I call precocious. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave, you graduate, your career goes into turbocharged, General Foods, American Express and Labatt's where I met you. What was your secret back then as somebody young making the kind of impact that you did? Because everywhere you went, your career accelerated beyond sort of the norm? What caused that, do you think? What advice can you give to others? I'll be honest with you. And I I, I get asked that question by a lot of the students that I teach now uh, at Queen's University. 
And I thought about it long and hard, Tony. And what I came down to was I was never supposed to be in business. And here I am teaching in the an, M- maybe an MBA class at one of the top business schools. And my entire career was in the business world because I was going off to be a lawyer when I joined General Foods and thought I'd try it for a year. And if it worked great, if it didn't, eh, I'd go back and you know finish my law degree. But I think not being a, a tailored um, kind of educated business person is what allowed me to ask different kinds of questions. And it wasn't because I was all that intelligent or had any advantage over anybody. It's literally because I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know what they were talking about. So I went in and had to do a lot of extra work and a lot of studying and a lot of digging around to find facts and information that um, came naturally to the others. But in the process of doing that, you know, you find out information that they've glossed over. You find out a little, just a little, you know, crack in the logic or an opportunity that they might have missed simply because I didn't think about the opportunity or the business like a business person. I thought about it more like a creative thinker. The job, the accountability for running that brand is yours. It starts at the top. It's the owner, it's the CEO, it's the C-suite, the senior executives of any company. And that could be a small business, that could be a huge corporation. If the leaders don't view the brand as an asset, it will always end up being punted off as a marketing effort to the marketing department. And in doing so, you lose the opportunity that your brand provides you. And you flush value down the to be quite honest. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is David Kincaid. He's an entrepreneur, author, speaker, and professor, one of North America's leading authorities on branding, and as it turns out, discovering talent in the name of Pamela Anderson. How important was it that in your knapsack, you were also the you know, the person that dived into so many different things growing up. You're, you were a drummer, but also formed a band. You got involved in student leadership. I mean, does that play a role when you get into business at a young age that gives you confidence beyond your years? I mean, just take what you said about the band. I mean, I had to get up every night in front of a, you know, a room full of people who I didn't know, and I had to entertain them. I needed to command the room. And I was the guy that did all the talking from the stage, funnily enough. So you you had to read what was not being said. You had to look at body language. And, you know, I remember a bar manager in Montreal gave me the best advice. He said, okay, look, your job is to get people up dancing. Because if they're not dancing, they don't get hot. If they don't get hot, they don't drink. If they don't drink, you're fired. (laughs) and so it was just the simple logic of it that I remember thinking yeah geez this guy's got a point of view but I think applying that kind of common sense logic and some creativity to everyday business problems if it comes to you quickly or naturally put it on hold because if it's coming to you quickly and naturally guess what it's coming to your competitors quickly and naturally trying to find that What's that extra approach or that different angle that maybe you could take that gives you some 
sustainable competitive advantage. And that's what I had to do throughout my career, like I said, because I didn't have a business degree. I had to find another way to impress the seniors so that they said, yeah, you know, this guy has got some smarts and, um, you know, he obviously got some issues that he's got to deal with as well in terms of his maturity and his ability to lead other people. Um, and that's where I gained some valuable lessons through some wonderful coaches. But I think that really gave me a bit of an advantage is, you know, be a business person without being a business graduate. And I always say to the students, don't let your curriculum dictate your career. Like, go out and do what you're passionate about. Now I want to have you share the story of Pamela Addison, because you discovering her actually absolutely changed her course in life. Well, I'll try to keep the short version. And don't believe the one that's on the Disney. Somebody sent me a copy of the Disney movie that's out right now, where all of this I'm apparently depicted in the movie. It's all bogus. It's not the way it actually happened. So you and I had created the Blue Zone. We had launched the Blue Zone and it just took off. And we made it a national program. And out in Vancouver, we also sponsored the BC Lions. And Pamela was living with our one of our sales reps and another young lady. Uh, they were waitresses. Jamie said, hey, look, would you mind if I gave Pamela and my roommates this Blue Zone gear uh, to wear at the football game? And then I'll tell the guys, because we sponsored the team in the stadium, I'll tell them to get her onto the, uh, the Jumbotron. Well, they did that. And let's just say the camera kept going back to her because the crowd wanted more of her than the football team. <laughs> and in fact, the foot, the guys on the field were up applauding every time she was up on the screen. And I was like, okay, we kind of took over. That became a media phenom. And then I got approached by her mother, of all people, who was kind of her agent, and said, hey, look, um, you know, would, would you be interested in having Pamela do more things for Labatt? And we met a couple of times and uh, we put her in a poster, which actually is in the movie. If you watch in their apartment, that, that is the real Pamela in the real poster. I don't know how they got a copy of that. And then she uh, became quite famous, ended up uh, in Playboy magazine. And the magazine would be phoning me for you know, interviews and uh, posters and other things that we had done with her. And then it just snowballed. And she ended up on Baywatch and one thing led to another. And we always supported one another, but we never really were in the same room. She was always on the West Coast. I was in Toronto. <laughs> it's fantastic. So I bet by now, if you had said yes, you'd be running Interbev, one of the largest beer companies, one of the largest companies in the world. But after 20 years of Labatt and doing so much and then wanting you to go over, you make a significant career change. Interbrew had talked to me about um, after we'd put it all together about moving over to Europe and my wife, our two daughters, our son hadn't been born yet. Let's just say she made it very clear we weren't moving to Europe. <laughs> I wanted to try something. I mean, the inner, the, the Labatt and Interbrew jobs, as you know, were probably the biggest marketing jobs in the country at the time. And I thought, okay, I've kind of been fortunate enough to play that at the biggest role. What's something I've never done? You go, 90 degrees, hey, I'm going to start something all by myself and just see if I can make it work. And I was putting that together and four buddies from my old General Foods years uh, when I first started approached me and said, hey, we're starting a specialty media company. Do you want to come on in and be part of a startup? And I thought, wow, here's a great way to 
learn what it's like to start something from scratch without having to put your house up <laughs> as collateral. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. And we did. And we started Chorus Entertainment, created wonderful media brands like YTV and the W Network, Q107. But, you know, media was never going to be my passion. Really, the reason I did it was to be a support to four people that from my past that I had huge respect for, and also to learn what it's like to be part of a startup. And I'll be honest, Tony, I'm so glad I took that opportunity because I screwed up so many things. <laughs> and I learned a ton because it's so different from running a big blue chip machine. And the biggest learning was don't assume that everybody understands what the hell it is you're trying to do. You know, you've gone off and bought these assets and you just assume they all get it why we bought you and where we're going, et cetera. And, you know, you could even go out and do your quick little PowerPoint presentation and here's your free tuna sandwich and a Coke. And uh, uh, and then you walk out the door and they're like, yeah, whatever. They weren't engaged. So I learned a lot from doing that. And I'm glad I did that because when I went to start up level five, which we're now celebrating our 20th year in the marketplace, I don't think we would have made it past the first two years if I didn't have all of that experience from, you know, unfortunately dropping the ball and making some mistakes during the startup at Chorus. So let's talk about level five, because this idea of creating something has become one of the most well-known and recognized boutique strategy firms, certainly not just in Canada, but you've done work all over the world. So give the listener a sense of how you formed the idea, animated it, attracted people and brought it to life. One of the biggest mistakes an, a, an entrepreneur uh, at any stage in their life makes is assuming that the market wants what it is they can do. So, hey, I've got an idea. I've learned how to make a new lemonade. Um, so I'm going to start a company and package it up and sell it. Well, yeah, but does the marketplace want a new lemonade? I took the extra time and said, what is, what's something that the market I think is missing today that if I was to use my background and my experience might create value for them. The marketplace, business leaders had in fact really lost touch with or even understanding of what a brand was. They all want one. They all think they've got one, but they don't know what it is and they don't therefore know how to manage it. Why? What's happened? It was basically because through periods of time, through a lot of consolidation, Companies went around buying other brands and just consolidating them and immediately cutting their costs to sustain profitability. But then at some point, you need to grow and you got to grow profitably. And that's what a great brand can do because a brand is an asset. Here's an opportunity at a time when the economy and Canada's competitiveness on the global stage, I might add, really needs to get their hands back around understanding what a brand is and how you need to manage it. A brand is not your marketing. I would phone CEOs and say, I want to come and talk to you about your brand, but I'm going to have our chief marketing officer sit in and just want to let you know, we just relaunched our website. And you're like, oh, okay, congratulations. That's great. That's not what I'm here to talk to you about. I'm here to talk to you about the asset called your brand that has a value to it, is leverageable value that reflects its processes, its culture, the kind of people that you hire and the leadership you need to be able to manage all of that. 
Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we return, David Kincaid will talk about how parking your ego might in fact be the key to driving your success. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Ideas matter. Ideas are the oxygen of human endeavor. They breathe life into how we work, live, and play. Ideas let us create and innovate and overcome complex and often challenging circumstances. Big or small, revolutionary or evolutionary, almost every positive step forward begins with a good idea. So bring your ideas to RBC because they matter, and they'll bring theirs because you matter. Ideas happen at RBC. The focus to a great brand is on that unmet need in the market, not on what it is you can make or sell. It sounds so easy to say, Tony, but that is a massive shift for a lot of business leaders out there, even still today. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is entrepreneur, professor, world leader in the art of branding, the one and only David Kincaid. What advice can you give to people to get people to think bigger, to go after something like this that says, you know what, we can do a better job as opposed to saying, hey, that's my job. Stop stepping on my toes. I've actually written three books. As I said, I teach at Queen's University on basically the subject that you've just pinpointed. I I think the easiest way to answer your question is to say, so therefore, how do I define what a brand is? I walk around saying what a brand isn't. It's not your marketing, but what is it? And what I came to, and it's the title of the second book, to be quite frank, I say a brand is the value. If I can't measure it, it's not a brand. It's a marketing concept or an expense. So the value of a promise consistently kept. What is that need in the market that I can, the promise that I can make? And then what do I need to do with my entire business system to keep it? especially in Canada, where we are increasingly a service-based economy, it's not just about the product. It's about how you service the product and how you, the customer experience, you wrap it around. Well, that requires your logistics people, your supply chain folks, your operations and production people. It's not just a marketing responsibility to keep a promise. Understanding that when you do make a promise as a, as a brand, you're engaging all parts of the company. What about a small business? I mean, it's they can't afford you. They don't necessarily even have their own marketing department. If they do, it's to, to create a website. Like, What advice can you give to, I mean, this is the heart of the Canadian economy. What advice can you bring to them in terms of uh, putting a capital B on the word brand? Many companies, but also most startups, start with the brand being defined by the product that they make or the service that they provide. This is what it is. So I I call that a product out approach to thinking about your business. Brands start with a market in perspective. It starts with understanding the market and then saying, what are the implications for what I make and how I make it and how I deliver it to the market as opposed to the other way around. Just that one little start point, Tony, can really write a completely different type of business plan. You know, I do a lot of speaking to entrepreneurs and small business owners, and what you're saying is so insightful because more often than not, I have this great idea. And it really is, whether you're saying product out or idea, first and foremost, what you're saying is you've really got to understand 
Who are you targeting? What are their unmet needs? Is this something that really matters to them? And then work your way back. I think that's incredible advice for uh, for small business. It takes you parking your ego as well. <laughs> and, you know, most entrepreneurs have a tendency to be a little more type A personalities. And it is hard to, to be told, well, n- nice idea, but eh, who cares? <laughs> I don't want it. What, what do you mean? It's a great idea. It's my idea. Well, no, you got to park it because you got to listen to what the market is telling you. And you don't have to run huge research studies to figure that out. I mean, even if you got to do some mom and pop testing with friends and family and go, here's the idea, here's the product, whatever. Tell me, what does this do for you? What's the benefit that it draws? It's interesting what you're saying, but even with the mom and pop, you have to make sure that you're open to listening to what they have to say. And the people that are offering you that advice as friends and family have to be honest. You know, one of the reasons to expand beyond people that just know you, I have to imagine, is to get a couple of strong wake-up calls. You know, I talked about my time at Chorus with the startup. If I hadn't made all of those mistakes, I wouldn't have been able to start Level 5 successfully. But more importantly, if I hadn't listened and understood what was behind the mistake, which meant parking the ego. You screwed this up, Dave. Like, <laughs> there's no there's no ifs, ands, or buts. So what are you going to do about it? And it forces what I call, you know, both personal and professional maturity. And I can be personally very mature, but professionally very immature. Right? So driving professional maturity means being able to listen to things objectively, really listen and ask the right questions. And put people in an environment where they feel comfortable telling you that your baby's ugly. How do you manage work-life balance? Because I know you're incredibly proud of how successful your marriage is, you as a father. How do you find a way to do it all? Because as entrepreneurship takes hold, it can become very addictive as well. Because it's you've got your hand on the rudder and you just want to keep selling that ship. The answer is driven by the type of individual that you're talking to. Because my balance might be different than your balance or somebody else's balance. I can tell you, I have been out of balance a number of times. And I've been so fortunate to have a loving group of family and friends around me that have said, you're out of, you're out of touch with your, with your balance and you need to fix it. Being able to prioritize um, what matters most has never been easy. And it uh, led me to a very serious health issue. Like I paid the price for it. Which ones really matter to you? Which ones drive your value? Think about it like a business if you want. And then prioritize and and invest in them accordingly. I'm a fan of your books. I'm a fan of your approach to life. And I, I love that you've got some of these great lessons in life. So I want to do a little bit of rapid fire with you. We talked about never stop learning and enjoying it, but uh, and love what you do, pursue your passion. So we've covered those two, I think, really well. But I love this, take the initiative, don't be afraid to start something. I think some people look at my career and say, oh, you mean about starting a business, an initiative to start a No, 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 no. It could have been in your corporate life. It's having fun in taking responsibility for something and saying, I think I've got a way of doing something that might either make us more effective or more efficient or whatever. Not waiting for groupthink and waiting for a committee to point out a bunch of, you know, stripped down 
answers. It's you saying, no, 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 I, I'm going to put my name to that. And uh, if it doesn't work, okay, I've learned something, but at least I tried. How important is it to have people that support you when you do that? When you're willing to step on that tightrope and try to cross it, people are saying you can do it versus don't do it, you're going to fall. Well, obviously, I think it's important to have some degree of support, even if it's just moral support that you've made the right decision and, you know, you, know, you go out on that tightrope, I'm going to stay back here on the on the ground. Um, but you don't need a f- massive team of people behind you to take an initiative. Sure. You know, you talked about the blue zone and the things you and I did. Well, that was at the time that was way out there. So, yes, that was taking a very high level of risk in an initiative. So I needed to align a whole bunch of people around it to make sure that it could happen. Not so that I could point at if it didn't work, but to just make it happen. But you could start something all on your own. So for that, maybe you need one person behind you. It's just having somebody that you can talk to at some point. You know, if the research is correct, future generations and a combination of people that went through the pandemic, more and more people are wanting to start their own business, have their own hand on the rudder, be their own boss. A lot of people don't because it is taking that step forward. So what's a David Kincaid lesson in life for people to go, if you're dreaming it, you've identified an unmet need in a target audience to just have the courage and conviction to go after it. The one thing that I have found in speaking to entrepreneurs, successful and unsuccessful, I might add, they basically had the common sense to be able to say, all right, if this doesn't work, what's the worst that could happen? Sure, there's risk. Yep, there's definitely risk. But the risk is it fails. Okay, and what are the implications if it fails? Well, there's capital that you've invested. There's people that you might have enlisted their support for. There's promises that you might have made that you can't see through. Yes, but in each case, Tony, those things, those things can be managed. So in the very, very worst case, all that you have is a, an X on your resume that says, I tried it and it didn't work. To me, they're done the right way. I think that X can be turned into a check mark. At least you tried. Now talk to me about what you learned from it. There's still value. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is entrepreneur, professor, world leader in the art of branding, David Kincaid. Talk about share what you know, teaching others creates energy and change. A lot of people like to hold their cards close to their chest. You're saying put them out on the table because that's how the world moves forward. You know, I won't go into the names, but there were two or three other firms that, you know, sometimes we compete with who are all celebrating their 20th or 25th anniversary as well. The very first thing I did was send the founders all a note. Way to go, man. (laughs) That's huge because what you're celebrating is what we just talked about. You took the initiative You built something, you were able to inspire the market and other people to get in behind it. You take that to your grave. There's your legacy. You should be so proud that you at least did that. I've really also got a lot of that energy that I spoke about from teaching. That's why I started the teaching. I did have a huge role and accountability when I was 
running the marketing at Labatt. And I progressed quickly. So yeah, 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 yeah. There's all the nice little things you can put on a CV, but it's the so what that really students benefit from hearing. That really is an opportunity. So by I'm finding I get turbocharged by sharing that learning. And again, as much the mistakes as the successes with these students, because the kind of questions they ask me today, I wouldn't have had the smarts to ask, you know, 20 years, 30 years ago. So you're sharing something and you're making them better. The final one I want to talk about is die with more friends than employees. Lifelong relationships are gold. My grandfather gave me that advice and I never met my grandfather. He died three months after I was born but he left this wonderful diary. That was his last lesson to me, a handwritten note. And when I read it, Tony, I had no clue what it is he meant. To be successful in business, die with more friends than employees. I kind of went, right. It is the passage of time that allows you to now to reflect on his words. And I do believe that the old guy had nailed it. The reason that I think I was able to have the success in my career that I've had as an entrepreneur or in the corporate world is because you treat people first and foremost as friends, not an employee number. I'm here to support you. We're kind of brothers and sisters in arms and I care about you and I'll treat you with respect and I'll be truthful and honest with you. I know you put family at the top of your list, putting them aside, author three books, highly respected and rated professor. And then this award you just got from the American Marketing Association for Mentorship. What are you the most proud of? I'll be honest. It, and again, I've told a lot of people this story, but when I went to start level five, I remember saying to my wife, Janet, that I'm actually not out to start a company. Now, between you and I, I think any moron can start a business, right? You go down to City Hall, get the registration number there, you start a business, way to go. I had, through my corporate years, really benefited, and in some cases, um, being victimized by cultures, good and bad. So I said, I'm not out to start a business. I want to see if I can create a culture. The toughest part of that is you can set an inspiring vision. You can outline with some values and behaviors um, what you, how you want to work together against that vision. And then you got to get the hell out of the way. That's the tough part about creating or managing a culture is you've got little control over it. It's about the people you choose to bring in. It's how quickly you exit the ones that don't fit. That is the legacy that I would be most proud of is the culture that we've built at Level 5. David, you've had uh, the trifecta of hits with Building Books and the brand-driven CEO. My sources say, and I'm pretty in tight with the publishing industry, you're like a handful of books away from bestseller. It is a little bit like launching a brand. You know, you've wrapped up your thinking and you put it out there and you hopefully it delivers on an unmet need. And um, that's as a result of sales all around the world. Apparently, it's quite hot in Malaysia. <laughs> publisher called and asked if I had family in Malaysia. <laughs> I said, no, it's, it's nice to get that kind of acknowledgement. Yeah, David, I always end, end my interviews with the three takeaways. I wasn't there to create a business. I was there to create a culture is uh, and powerful lessons in life for anyone. And I think that just doesn't apply to small business. It applies to the department you work in. That applies to your family and your friends, the sense of culture and knowing that that culture is not something you have control over, but simply influence. The second thing is this concept of outside in. 
Park your ego at the door. I know you think that's the greatest idea in the world, but just go out and validate it by understanding who are you serving? Is it an unmet need? Is it something that really matters to them? And then work your way back. And then the final thing that to me is the, the greatest lesson for everybody listening, and that includes you as an individual or a small business owner, or you could be the CEO, promises made or promises kept. That when you realize that the true value of your brand is how you demonstrate that in every part of your organization, how you knit that together, weave it together, breathe life into it, that alone is the drop the mic moment. David, I knew you're going to be outstanding at providing some great lessons in life. And you've never lost that sense of uh, mischief or being the precocious kid that played drums, played golf, and did everything else they can, trying to do 15s out of 10. So thanks for that. Thanks for being part of Chatter That Matters. Thank you, bud. Really, a lot of fun. It was quite an honor. As a serial entrepreneur, I've been a student of business my entire career. One of the observations I made early on was that there's three kinds of companies. The first are those who make things happen, the innovators who seek first mover advantage. Then there's those who's watching them respond to what happens. They're the imitators. They study the innovators, they look for territory or customers they missed out on, or they go after the same customers with a better mousetrap. And then finally, those are the ones that wondered what happened. As the world moved on, they stood still. They were often the dangerous ones. As they lost ground, they often relied on desperate tactics, including deep discounting, to try and hold on. And their desperation sent earthquakes across the entire category. My belief is always be someone that's either making things happen or quickly watching and responding. Second observation I made is that great businesses and great leaders never make it about themselves. They have every right to. They're the market leaders, the thought leaders, the ones that command the highest market share and salary. But that might make you the biggest, but it doesn't make you the greatest. The ones that stand out, they make their entire existence about their customers, their employees, their communities, and the planet they serve. That's why they matter. And in doing so, they earn the loyalty by helping others get to where they need, want, and deserve to go. If you're a fan of this podcast, you know that I refer to those great people and great businesses as Yodas. Why? Because Yoda didn't defeat the evil empire, but he made it his mission to help Luke Skywalker. As he said, do or do not, there is no try. Years ago, I was working for Holt Renfrew. And their position in the marketplace was under attack on a number of fronts. The president, Andrew Jennings, and his 2IC, a wonderful marketer, Alex Box, asked me to look at their brand. I didn't care about their newspaper ads or billboards. What I cared about was their people. What were they signaling to customers as you went into the store? So I went across the country as a Mr. Shopper. If I wasn't dressed the part, if I wasn't dressed for halts, I was usually ignored. And even when I did engage with many of their staff, at best it was pointed in the direction for the merchandise I was looking for. So I came back to make my presentation to Andrew and Alex. I told them that throughout their stores, there seemed to be a single chord being played. Holtz was the preeminent luxury retailer. They had the best assortment of luxury brands under one roof in Canada. I asked them, why does that matter? I challenged their position by saying, I had a different role for Holtz. Instead of the preeminent luxury retailer, I saw them as the fairy godmother. You didn't get to go to the ball, but you had the honor of dressing Cinderella who did. I went through a role playing where I pretended I was walking to a store and I was asking the staff for a pair of jeans. And at best, they'd show me to where the rack was. Most would just point me that way. But then I said, what if the staff asked a simple question? Jeans, why, what's up? And I was to answer, for example, I'm going on a ski trip. Skiing, jeans, oh, and a prey ski party? then they could say, have I got an outfit for you? They could sell into my moment. 
They can help my dream become reality. When you're thinking of your brand or an idea, raising capital or anything you're trying to do in advance in life, don't focus on what it is or how you plan to do it. Focus on why you matter to the people that matter most to you. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.